0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Fight Back Podcast. My name's Georgia Very. I'm an exercise scientist, kickboxer, and the founder of the Fight Back Project, a trauma-informed kickboxing program for women. I started the Fight Back Podcast to inspire and empower women to try martial arts. If you're listening to this podcast having you know, never tried martial arts, I really hope that listening to this will inspire you to take the leap. And if you already do martial arts, then I know you already know how amazing it is. So I hope that, you know, listening to this, you'll feel inspired to reach out to a friend or someone in need and get them into trying martial arts. We have a very uh, we have varied formats on this podcast. So, Sometimes you're just going to get me talking about journal articles or things that I think are relevant to martial arts and mental health. Sometimes I will be interviewing amazing women with incredible stories of overcoming adversity through martial arts. Sometimes I'll be doing interviews with experts and that's what you're getting today. So today I'm sitting down with Anne Matheson. She's a psychotherapist and one of my main mentors in developing the Fight Back project. She's trained in somatic experiencing, which she'll explain in the interview. But she's been a wealth of knowledge in terms of how the body responds to trauma and how we can work directly with the body in trauma. So I hope you get as much out of this interview as I did and speaks so well. She just makes everything so easy to understand when this is really quite a complex area of science and psychology to grasp if you're coming from no knowledge base. So I hope you really enjoy the interview. All right, Anne, thank you so much for sitting down to chat with me. I'll we'll get you to start off by introducing yourself and telling everyone a bit about your story. a
1: little bit about my story. well, thanks Georgia for coming all the way down. It's a long drive, so I really appreciate your your energy um, my story. I suppose I'm a psychotherapist and I work with trauma, so I am a somatic experiencing psychotherapist and uh, my own story is uh, that particular work has really had a huge impact on me personally and made me a lot more relaxed and chilled out and recognising my own biology more. So um, that's a sort of form that I use when I'm being a therapist.
0: And I know you started out in nursing, so what does the journey look like from nursing to psychotherapist? Well, that's very...
1: <laughs> What's the journey look like? Look at it all it all makes sense. What makes sense is my recognition of um, I mean, nursing was because I really liked working with people, and I really liked um, being supportive and friendly and helpful. The journey. It's a long, long journey because there was nursing and psych nursing and midwifery and education and teaching ambulance officers. And and then moving to Singapore and living there for quite a long time. So yeah, I think I think they're all interrelated. They're all interconnected. It's all about healing and wanting to support other people's um, journeys, really.
0: And I know now you have a strong focus on somatic experiencing. Can you explain to listeners what is somatic experiencing? Somatic experiencing is a way of
1: working in, in therapy that looks at, um, really looks at our biology. So it looks at our sympathetic nervous system and our vagus nerve. And it looks at how we respond to trauma of any kind or stress to any kind. So what it does is it um, is more body focused than story focused because it's very well known now in um, many circles in therapy that the body, is the place where the story gets stored and held. So the body uh, has tension patterns. It ha- has anxiety in it, and stress, and patterns of freeze and fleeing and fight. And those patterns they get stored from original traumas, and then follow- subsequent trauma keeps on uh, reinforcing those so- same patterns. So often we notice that we've got, we've continually got the same. Uh, pattern. We might have a lot of anxiety in our gut. We might have really sore shoulders, or we might um, get really frightened just by looking at a certain person that we see in the street. We might have ways of, of um, trying to protect ourselves, but by, by looking down or, or leaning forward, we might have a certain way of walking. So, so somatic experiencing really looks at the fine the fineness of the body and it titrates, a bit like homeopathy. We, we work with the trauma and we work with safety. So we help the body feel safe primarily. So a lot of the work is about helping the body feel safe and knowing that it's safe. And it's very much based on um, Peter Levine, who's the founder of Somatic Experiencing, has spent a lot of time studying mammals and animals in the wild, and it's very much based on how animals in the wild, um, when they have a traumatic event, they they either fight, they fly, they flee, or they freeze, or they collapse. And then after any of those things happen, they get up and they shake, and they no longer have the trauma. Because we have a a very well-functioning brain, we tend to override the shake. We tend to override our trauma and so it stays stuck in our bodies so that we, we don't really get to really, really relax. We become hypervigilant in the world and scared. And at the moment with COVID-19, there's a lot of fear around because people don't feel that comfortable even in their own homes, especially if there's, there's you know, a difficulty with your partner or who you live with as well. So somatic experiencing is um, a really fine, safe, and respectful way to work with people and uh, and it works the thing is it works it relaxes people's nervous systems and it helps people get over their trauma
0: and can you talk us through an example of a way that you might work with someone in somatic experiencing say say if somebody uh, experienced a car accident let's use and they were unable to fight or flight because they were trapped in the car, and so then that was stuck. What's an example of a way you might, I guess for a want of a better term, dislodge that need so that they can process what happened to them?
1: Well, that would take time over – that would take quite a few sessions to do that, but the first thing would be is to um, help them feel safe. So I'd be getting them to really um, look around the room that they're in when they're with me to find places that feel safe and see what that feels like in their body. So they're actually looking around the room. They might see an object that they really like and then we will talk about the object and then we'll say, well, what's, how does that impact you? How does that feel? And we look around further. And it's the looking around that really helps the, the, the muscles of the neck know that the, that the space that we're in is safe. So first off, we do a lot of work developing safety in the body and that, that would go on for quite some time. And then when, we, when we'd start to look at the car accident, we'd look at a little segment prior to the accident and after the accident. So we look way before, like it's something called T3. We look way before and we look after. How are you now? You know, what have you noticed? When did you know it was safe? When did you know you were going to be okay? And then what was it like? before you know what was it like as you were driving along what was the feeling you know that we were talking about the relaxation so we spend a lot of time going from the from the pre to the post and not actually going into the trauma so we do that for a very long time and it's um what happens then is a person starts to develop a window of tolerance so they start to feel more capacity in them oh yeah i got over this oh yeah i'm safe it's safe in this room my body is safe I'm safe. And then when we do start to work closer towards the actual time of the accident, the person's body starts to, or people anyway in sessions, they start to move in a certain way and you see an action that they could have done to, that would have um, helped them, um, an action that wasn't being able to be completed, for example. So the completion of an accident, say, for example, in a car accident would be maybe to go off to the side or to go around, or to stop. So it's almost like their body then, you let their body work out what's going on. Quite often people might put their foot down on the brake, or they might move the steering wheel. And we do that really slowly. So it's almost like the body then is learning to recalibrate and recognise that, ah, I got out of this.
0: You mentioned a term or a concept, the window of tolerance we or you and i have been thinking about that quite a bit in relation to trauma informed kickboxing can you explain what is a window of tolerance gosh <laughs> i should have looked at my books
1: and <laughs> <No>, i didn't <laughs> the window of tolerance is the, is a, is uh, like a capacity for resilience and when we're really really traumatized you know when we've had a lot of um, maybe violence or whatever uh, perpetrated against us we can't really cope with very much we can't cope with with being asked too much of. So the window of tolerance is like a like a stretchy capacity that grows as we start to feel more and more safe and we know we've escaped and we know we're okay. So it's like a it's like a sort of a expanded resiliency that starts to happen in our nervous system where we start to think I can do this, I can do this because often The first part of the the very restricted window of tolerance is I can't. There's no way I can do this. There's no way I'm going there. There's no way. So it's a little bit like, oh, yeah, I can. Oh, yeah, I can do a little bit more. Oh, yeah, I can do a bit more. Oh, I can do quite a bit. So uh, that's probably the the way that I would explain it.
0: You didn't need your books at all. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of the window of tolerance then and and the concept that you know, when we're working with people who have experienced trauma, we want to ensure that they're not being pushed too far outside of their window of tolerance. And that's something that you and I have spoken about in relation to the trauma-informed kickboxing program. Can you explain what a trauma-informed program might be and in terms of what considerations we've discussed that would be important for people in trauma going through a trauma-informed, somatic-experiencing-influenced kickboxing program?
1: Okay, that's a big question. I think it's really good for people to know um, what how trauma is, um, comes up in their bodies. So as soon as people feel um, when they're doing the program that they feel a, a fair bit of anxiety or they feel distracted, or a sense of I've got to get away, I've got to hide, or well, it's too it's too much for me, that it slows down. So the the, the thing that I noticed when I uh, trained in SE and also did a lot of had a lot of personal sessions, is the slowness of it. The body needs things to be done slowly. You know, we often talk so fast and we're really distracted and we're busy, but the body needs slow. So I would say. The moment a person says, oh, I feel, I feel a bit overwhelmed, is it, it's okay to stop and to say to that particular client, what would it be like to let yourself sit down or go and get a glass of water or just look around the room or just you know another, another thing, look out the window at the trees. Let yourself just slow right down. Even sometimes, I was just thinking the other day, we were talking about grounding. Even sometimes with grounding, some people can get activated with that because it feels like they can't escape. So it's good to know that you're able to do your kickboxing from a place of saying, it's safe here, and whatever your body says, we will respect it. So we just take it really slowly and we show kindness towards what's happening in the body. And often people don't know that they're freezing, they don't know that these things are happening because they're working from their head up. But as a as a kickboxing person, you would know because you know already how huh, when people go into a bit of freeze and <laughs> withdrawal from the from the work, and that probably is their own trauma response a bit because they don't feel, uh, yeah, everything starts to feel really frightening. And scary.
0: Has that how answered it, sort of? Absolutely. I think some of the other things we spoke about was the non-contact nature and how important that that is. And like you've emphasised over and over again, the word safe just is, is really what it centres around. It's a safe space and there's a strong emphasis on whatever you need in order to make this a safe place for you, we can provide. If people... Maybe people who have not such strong trauma responses, maybe they have some trauma, but you know, they're quite, they're quite high, highly developed in their rehabilitation or it hasn't affected them as significantly. And they're thinking about just joining to do martial arts, you know, like how when you went and did the the class and everybody was trying to tackle you. Would you have any advice for people going into to try out doing martial arts on their own if they are a bit scared? What would you say to those people?
1: Well just from my own experience I would say and we've talked about that is finding a practitioner that we feel we can trust and that will respect our our, our own um, where we're coming from because everybody has a bit of trauma. I mean we you know we have siblings we have school situations we have parents you know we all have something um that has that makes us reactive and frightened so i think it's really important to have someone that we think oh yeah this person is really seeing me this person understands that i'm frightened and they're not going to push me too hard so I i see that in you i mean i think that's what you're offering so i i feel like that's that's really important is the is the trust in the in the other person and and also for the practitioner to say, or the, you know, the client to say, "Hey, look, this really scares me. Have you got? Is there something else that I could do that is a little bit less scary? Like, can I just can I just try something else that's just a bit a titchy witchy, less scary than being, you know, come out by a young man, you know, <laughs> to try and pull me over? Can I just try something else?" So sometimes people can't even say that because they feel so ashamed ashamed of their fear. So it's a little bit like you, as the practitioner, as the as the expert, picking um, picking up on that and saying, "Hey, look, I see you're a bit reluctant. Is there some? Oh, how about trying this? Or how about just going over over there on your own and trying this against the wall or whatever it is
0: that that you might offer?" So you see what I mean? It's like again titrating it. And I guess on that same theme then, if you had a platform like this to speak to many people who might teach martial arts similar to that, and as we say, you know, everybody has a bit of trauma, so what's some advice that you can give instructors when they're teaching a class to look for in their students to maybe help guide them to give those kind of recommendations or to help them to modify the training to accommodate for people's trauma what what things should they look for in people's body language and behavior
1: uh they can look for um, when people's eyes start darting around when they start getting a bit fidgety on their feet when they start moving further away or when they start to get a bit like a frozen statue look um or or uh, their face is not showing relaxation or what we call the social engagement system. So there's not a, a friendly, easy face. If the face is looking really terrified, is to really respect it because uh, you know we we push our children so much, and and they sometimes they're terrified, and they and martial arts can be a traumatic experience. So that as in my case, so the so the teachers need to look at you know, am I? responsible enough to recognize that this I can traumatize people through this practice, how do I go at their pace? Because you know, there's often big groups and so there's an expectation that everyone has to go at the same pace. How do I recognize each individual and allow them, actually allow them to not feel shame at not being able to do something? Because that's, that's the big thing. Shame is the big thing that keeps trauma really frozen and stuck. You know, I'm not good enough, there's no way I can do it, I'm out of here. Yeah, they flee, and you never see them again. Which is what happened in my case.
0: You just mentioned another concept that I'd love for you to explain, which is uh, the social engagement system. You've already explained the window of tolerance, so can you explain how what the social engagement system is and how it relates to the window of tolerance? Oh wow! How it relates to the window of tolerance. <laughs> That's
1: a tricky question, but uh, well, I think I yeah I can get that. I can work it out. Well, as we as as mammals, you know, we we developed from a very ancient system where we didn't have a myelinated vagus nerve, so we went into fear, flight, or fight, or freeze, or collapse. And as we grew and became more social animals, we ended up having a vagus nerve that has myelin around it and the capacity to. And that influences our. That actually is a connector between our heart and our head. So there's a really strong, when we feel open and relaxed with someone, we can look them in the eyes. We can smile. We can feel their heart and their 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 engagement. And we feel, ah, oh, there's a place that I feel comfortable and safe and relaxed. And so this social engagement system is really the way in which. Us mammals can tell who's dangerous and who's not in the world. So when we feel like like we might go to a party, for example, and everyone's frowning, most of us would go, I'm out, I can't cope with this. Or we might look at someone and they don't smile back and we think, I can't, I can't manage that. But when someone smiles back, we then get that sort of like a mirror neuron thing. We get that thing happening where we go, Oh, there's a friendly face, there's a place where I feel safe and comfortable. And so the more the more we start to feel safe and comfortable inside our own bodies, the more open we are and the more our window of tolerance because we're not so frightened of social engagements. We're not, we're not perceiving everybody as a threat. We're actually aware that that person over there that looks dangerous in the tube station or something who's got their head down with a hoodie, for example. And looks dark and brooding. That that person, maybe I'll stay away from that. But we know that the majority of people are safe. So we have a, we have a. It's not even conscious. It's an automatic response to knowing what's safe and what's not. And our window of tolerance increases when we feel more and more safe inside. Does that make sense? Sort of
0: like all over the place. No, I think that was perfect. If I'm correct, I'll just clarify on top for people who don't know what myelin is my understanding is that myelin is fat that means that the nerves can conduct signals quite quickly because there's extra matter to for the electrical signal to be conducted um and so the development of that just meant that the neural signal could be stronger
1: yes that's my understanding too and also it means that we can relate we're not relating from a reptilian place because the unmyelinated um Nerves are very reptilian and very, very ancient. So they're a little bit like what reptiles do, and when when they're when there's threat. So we have developed beyond that, if that makes sense. And mammals have
0: us mammals.
1: Funny to call ourselves mammals,
0: isn't it? <laughs> we are yes, funny to call ourselves mammals. No, I think that's a great explanation. There's one more term that I'd like you to explain. You talked about mirror neurons. What are mirror neurons um, and how does trauma affect mirror neurons? Now, I don't think that was in the
1: <laughs> mirror neurons. I just brought that up because um, it's, I don't exactly know what mirror neurons are, but I knew they must be neurons in our system somewhere where we feel um, that the other person gets us. So there's a there's a there's a getting there and a connection there. It's a bit like we look. Um, it's almost like a what we call an attunement to another person. So it's a way in which our body feels safe and attuned to another person, and that can be that you know when we're chatting with a friend and we really feel heard, that's like a mirror neuron experience, I suppose. Or sometimes when we're with a partner and we're really feeling the connection with them, and they really feel like they're, they're listening well. That's like a mirror neuron experience, but I'm not exactly sure what they are.
0: <laughs> they're in there somewhere. I might be able to help. You know, I mean, yeah. in, through my studies as an exercise scientist, yes. uh, we look at mirror neurons in terms of motor learning. So if I did a punch, in your mind or in your brain, some neurons, so some brain cells, called mirror br- neurons or n- mirror brain cells will mirror that and so they will copy that motor pattern and there will be a lighting up of certain regions of my brain that are copying what I did or you know copying what someone else did. And then you know what to do. so it's not like you've seen nothing. That's how if I do a punch, you can somewhat copy it is because of mirror neurons. Similarly, if I smile, your mirror neurons will light up and make you smile as well. It's common if that we copy each other's facial expressions. In relation to trauma, what I've read so far, which is much less than you, is that people's ability to access their mirror neurons becomes a bit broken. And so they don't often copy back the smiling and they don't often, you know, they're not therefore able to make as strong as social connections because they don't feel connected to people or people don't feel connected to them because they're not copying them back. And so they think, well, this person's different to me. And then, you know, the person, because they've got that narrow field where they only notice the negative, they go, oh, I'm doing something wrong. And they feel even more pushed away. And it's just because someone smiled at them and they didn't smile back because their brain was too busy focused on the trauma to let them use their mirror neurons, which is an, an important social adaptive thing for us. And then also important in us for, for learning new skills. Um,
1: no, that's really that's a really good way to put it. Actually, I'm glad you, you gave me that explanation <laughs> because yeah, when people are traumatized, they you know a smile can feel scary. If someone's too too smiley or too friendly, they that we, we don't know what someone's trauma is. It might be unsafe. To, to, to be around that sort of person, you know, that that I don't know what's coming next sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a bit like the, them, those mirror neurons don't know how to respond because they've been frozen a bit. I just wonder if they've been frozen a bit. That's another idea.
0: Yeah, I think we've learned a lot in the last five years about the brain in trauma and we'll probably learn a lot in the next five years, mm. so I'm very excited to see what scientists can figure out for us to then go and put into practice as practitioners. I'm conscious that we don't take up too much of your time. So just one final thing mm-hmm. would be, do you have any advice for for women in particular at the moment, you know, struggling with COVID? Um, I guess for anyone listening who's struggling with COVID, but also just for for people in general, anything that you want to tell everyone?
1: Yeah, what would I like to tell everyone? That that it is possible to find safety somewhere and there's a lot of resources and there is a chance to change. You know, our brains are really plastic and there is a, a, a way to change and, and finding people like George's program and other things that help you know that there are there are there are places that you can get to through your computer and you can see another person who is there to, to help you out is a really important thing. And what I've noticed during COVID is, in you know, my own situation, how, how people come to, come to support other people, even through their computers. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing we have, our, com- our, our capacity to connect through a computer. I mean, it's a weird thing. You know, 20 years ago, we would have thought that was sort of space science, wouldn't we, something weird. But now we really notice that we connect through our computer, I mean, we even connect if we're watching our favourite television shows that are nice and calm. So I would say that to surround ourselves with as much calm as possible and watching the news non-stop is not, not good for us. It just activates our, our um, hypervigilance and makes us really scared. So it's good to put on nice music and have more calm. And also to approach those people like Georgia that um, are offering something that helps your body feel like it can have a bit of resilience and strength and capacity.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Anne. I I truly, I was so keen to get you onto this podcast because I think the way you explain these concepts is just, it's so simple, but it's really relatable for people who are coming to this with, with no knowledge. And I think- this interview will help a lot of people understand some of the science behind, you know, the program that we're working towards here, the Fight Back Project, and a lot of the science behind even just why they feel hijacked by their emotions all the time and that, you know, it's okay. And we're all humans and, you know, we're just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And, and, and one good thing to,
1: one, one really good thing to know is, you know, we can feel bad because our bodies acted in a certain way you know like it's frozen or it's or it's runaway or it's um, fight a fighting it's all a survival mechanism and we need to be able to respect that our body has done the best it could so when we respect that it's not like there's something wrong with us it's that this is a way that we managed to survive and we did a good job and we can and we can respect that our body's tried its hardest so that that's good to know that because often people feel really bad about being traumatized
0: I think just quickly, I heard a recent statistic that 70% of women who are in an assault situation will freeze, mm-hmm. you know, and that there are multiple accounts of MMA fighters freezing. And so it's, it's not a situation where you, you need to be better at fighting and defending yourself. And if trauma happens to you, the reason it happened was because you weren't good enough.
1: And there's one more thing that's really that I found out um, through the polyvagal theory that, I, that really, really helped a lot is that our body automatically goes into a collapse when we feel like there's no way out. It will, it will take over and, uh, and collapse and faint. And quite often attacks end when someone has fainted or they've collapsed. The, the attacker loses interest. In the wild the, the, the animal often loses interest. So it's important to know that it's nothing to do with I should have been able to get myself out of this. I should have been able to run. I should have been able to um, fight. The truth is our body does take over and does the best thing it can and that takes away the shame. It's a biological response. So that's, that's a good thing to know.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we squeezed that in at the end. I think it's really, really important. Let's end the toxic, I should have things that we just keep telling ourselves. And, yeah, I will talk to you guys soon. Thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Anne, and um, have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, my wonderful listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this interview If you enjoyed it and if you've been enjoying this podcast, could you please leave me a review? When podcasts get reviews on iTunes especially, they become much more visible and then other people will know that this podcast exists. So if you like it and you've got a spare couple seconds, tap on the podcast and where it says leave a review, you can tap on that and choose to give me five stars. If you're listening, if you don't think this podcast deserves five stars, could you please contact me and tell me why and how I can make it better? Because I would love to hear that feedback as well. As always, you can follow on Instagram. It's at Fightback Project. And follow me on Facebook is The Fightback Project. And you can get all the updates with new uh, group sessions being added to the Fireback project, which is just crazy exciting. So I hope you're following along there. Um, and even if you're not, have an absolutely fantastic day or night, wherever in the world you are listening to this. Thank you so, so much for all your support. Bye bye.